Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 481st show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Allison Beach, Professor of Medieval History at the University of St. Andrews, and we're going to be talking about her book, Women as Scribes, Book Production and Monastic Reform in the 12th Century Bavaria. Joining us on the second segment of the show are history buffs, Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. First of all, Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you. We are very excited to uh, have you on and to learn more about this. So our first segment we call Farouk Dinarin, and basically we just want to give our listeners a little background information before we get started, uh, get too far along. So if you can, start us off with some basic information about how books were produced in the Middle Ages. Ah, okay. So really background information. Um, Books were produced in the Middle Ages using animal skins that had the hair uh, and the flesh removed from uh, the sides of them, uh, and they were carefully prepared uh, and smoothed and then were written uh, by uh, scribes who worked um, with a pen that they had to dip pretty much for every letter they made. Uh, and uh, this was extremely time-consuming, very high-skill work, uh, but every book was produced by hand uh, in the Middle Ages. Okay, so... We have an image in our head of of some poor monk somewhere. Um, it's locked. always a monk. Everyone else. Yeah, has exactly. A monk in their mind. Yes, yeah. you know, it's it's some some monk, and he's locked in a room somewhere with with nobody around, and he's freezing to death because there's no heating system, and he's laboring away at at creating this this um, manuscript. How far off is that image from what reality was? Well, it's not far. It's not far off, to be honest. Um, I mean, many monks were book copyists, but there were also obviously women uh, who copied books. Uh, so your your monk images may be a little skewed, um, but it would be very cold, uh, especially in the parts of Europe that I study uh, in in Germany, especially in the winter time. And the writing workshop, the scriptorium, would they would have been very much afraid of fire. So either they would have been writing outside in the, the sort of area around, uh, if you picture what a, a, a monastery looks like, uh, and maybe you don't have a picture of what a monastery looks like, but there's a nice big garden in the center and then a walkway around it. And that was a nice place to sit and catch the daylight and write. But in the winter months, uh, it might have been quite cold. Um, but you would not have uh, been hovering around candles or fires uh, to do it because of the fear of the manuscripts burning. So you aren't so far off. <laughs> so is manuscript production something that is sort of universal? Every monastery kind of did it? Or is it something that, that some monasteries specialized in and or became renowned for? You know, how did that work? Yeah. Well, the, the the poorest monasteries would have been happy to put food uh, on the table and have maybe one or two books for the liturgy or maybe for study uh, in their library. A library was often just a very few books. There uh, would have been communities that had quite a bit of wealth that were able to produce manuscripts uh, of and it would have been of some renown. So there were famous scribal workshops from very, very large, wealthy monasteries. There were scribal workshops in less well-known monasteries that also produced quite a few manuscripts. 
But if you imagine how many sheep uh, it required to create uh, a manuscript, and it could be you know, upwards of 200, uh, you're talking about a lot of uh, wealth uh, that a monastery just might not have. So not in every monastery, some uh, rather modest production in smaller monasteries, and then the superstar monasteries like St. Gall in Switzerland or Reichenau uh, in Germany. Okay, so in my period anyway, in the 12th century. Sure. Mm. Um, so in this time period, where are the writing material coming from? We're not talking about pens and and you know skins and things like that, but you know the the books that are being made. I assume most of them are copies of other books. What right. books are being copied, and how are those originals? Uh, making it to the the place where copies are are going to be produced. Well, that's a great question. Um, the the most common types of books that I would say w- w- in a 12th century monastic library, so things that they would have been interested in copying, uh, the Church Fathers, so uh, bestsellers, so to say, uh, Saint uh, Gregory the Great, uh, Jerome, uh, other Church Fathers, John Chrysostom. Uh, and those would have been used for creating sermons and homilies or for the study of the Bible. Um, if uh, every monastery, regardless of how small, needed books for the liturgy, both for the Mass, every most monasteries would have had a monastic church where there would be an altar where Mass was said, um, but also the books that were required for singing the round of psalms that comprised the, the divine office or the, the sort of the liturgy of the hours the monks and nuns would go through all 150 psalms starting on Sunday night, uh, and they would break them up and sing them uh, throughout the week. So you would need books for that as well. Uh, Where you got them, if you didn't have your own workshop, uh, patrons could give you uh, a book for your your monastic liturgy. Um, You could have a gift from uh, another monastery in the region. Often communities that are interested in sort of uh, putting forward a particular form of religious life, a particular reform, uh, would very happily send you uh, books for your liturgy that showed you the way um, they thought the monastic uh, life should be run. Uh, and I think just about every community after the, well, I probably shouldn't put such a fine point on it, but after the Carolingian period, so after the ninth century, Every monastery is supposed to have a copy of uh, the rule that they're following in the Carolingian period. That would have been the rule of St. Benedict, um, and the, at least the regulations say uh, that you're supposed to have uh, a copy of that rule in, in every monastery. So um, you could borrow books if you didn't uh, have a copy of a text you wanted. This is echoed in uh, surviving letters from the period. You'll see people saying, hey, do you have a copy of this text on how to create uh, really stylish letters. If you do, can we please borrow it? Uh, Sometimes the books never were returned. People haven't changed much since the Middle Ages, and they forget to return books. And so we often find copies of books that we think were borrowed to be copied that never quite made it back to their original library. So borrowing, gifting, creating, all ways of uh, uh, getting books. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Check out the new Mississippi Valley Blues Society website at mvbs.org. 
they have recorded and digitized tons of content from past Blues Fests, interviews, and workshops, and introduced Volt Sessions, great acts from popular blues artists. Their new web store has all of the MVBS gear you could ever want, plus exclusive signed posters from past Blues Fests. With the new blues calendar, MVBS.org has all of the latest on local blues happenings. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Allison Beach, professor of medieval history at the University of St. Andrews, and we're talking about her book, Women as Scribes, Book Production and Monastic Reform in 12th Century Bavaria. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. And Brett, as our resident medieval historian, why don't you start us off? Gladly. Allison, one of the common misconceptions that people have about the Middle Ages is, is they imagine it as a very colorless place. Uh, and one of my favorite things about illuminated manuscripts is the variety of color uh, that you find in them. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you would go about creating those different colors of ink? Absolutely. I just actually did this with one of my master's students uh, this past week. We actually worked with some of the, the pigments uh, that would have been used in the Middle Ages and an egg or two eggs, actually, that we had, and we actually created paint uh, and and worked with it a little bit uh, in my office. So ink was created from, or not ink, uh, the picture, you're asking about the images, so the illuminations, um, were made from grinding various substances, usually st- minerals, uh, precious stones, uh, sometimes uh, earth is mixed with either egg yolk or egg white, which... Uh, gets uh, sort of separated out and is called egg glare. Um, And they would have mixed uh, pigment in small batches. You can imagine if you're going to be working with something with raw egg, you you mix up a new batch every day. And they would have worked with small uh, trays or uh, seashells or what you see in the pictures of them uh, uh, creating books often in medieval manuscripts. You mix some of the pigment, which is like a fine powder, uh, with egg yolk or egg white. Um, and uh, and then they would paint. Uh, they would paint with that. So mo- most famously, um, some of the most famous colors: ultramarine, uh, that beautiful, beautiful sort of high blue you think of in medieval manuscripts, uh, was created with lapis lazuli stone that was ground and rinsed and ground and rinsed until it was a very fine, uh, beautiful blue powder. Um, but reds. Uh, such as uh, vermilion, were also extremely valuable, and that would have been also a powder uh, that was mixed uh, with egg uh, and applied to the to the prepared animal skin, the parchment. Okay, Rick, Allison, uh, how prevalent were women in this uh, process of uh, book copying and production? Well, it's very hard to know how prevalent they were because so many of the manuscripts that we have that survived are anonymous. So um, I think in the past, and and we opened up in the beginning, uh, the first segment talking about that image of a monk 
sitting at a writing desk all alone in a cold room. Uh, it's one of my goals in life for people to come to a manuscript that isn't signed, that isn't attributed, and keep an open mind about whether it was a male or a female scribal uh, a, a painter or artist, because we just don't know. We don't know um, the balance of male to female, um, and I think the assumption that it's uh, a monk doing it has has caused us to not even consider maybe that something was copied by a woman. I did a study uh, in my book. I looked at uh, signed manuscripts um, that were produced by women, and that's a that's a pretty um, uh, depressing statistic, I suppose, um, of all of the signed manuscripts that we have in a there's a catalog of them. Um, only two percent were signed by women. But you have to keep in mind that that's a tip of the iceberg of the surviving manuscripts, and the vast majority um, are absolutely anonymous. So we really just don't know. It may just be that men were more likely to take credit, and women were expected to be more humble and not take credit, and that skews uh, sort of our understanding of of, uh, women's contributions to book production. Okay, Allison, along those lines, how do we start to make the the argument that that women are involved in production when there are so few women who are signing manuscripts is there a way of identifying archaeologically that women were involved in the process i'm thinking of somebody um who's working and and is using lapis lazuli and takes the pen and puts it in their mouth as we all do from time to time when we're mm-hmm. writing and so some of that gets caught in like teeth enamel and things like that that you would then be able to to look at you know a thousand years uh, later right. are things are things like that going on that kind of give us an indication that maybe this is more prevalent than what we think it is. Yes, and I, actually, you, you you give a great example because it's actually not the enamel that the the pigment gets stuck to; it's the biofilm on your teeth, and everybody always puts their tongue to the back of their teeth when I say this, but when uh, in the normal course of daily life, there's a film that forms on on your teeth, and it's sticky, Um, and it also, if you don't remove it with a toothbrush, and people in the Middle Ages tended not to brush their teeth, um, it actually calcifies, and the things that got stuck to that biofilm actually become trapped in a kind of matrix of calcium. And I was involved in a project a couple of years ago, and it's actually an ongoing research project um, that tried to figure out how lapis lazuli pigment, so this very, very fine ground uh, lapis lazuli stone, uh, ended up in the dental calculus. Uh, Some uh, bioarchaeologists have developed this amazing technique of breaking it down and seeing what's trapped in there. Uh, and uh, they, they actually found lapis lazuli pigment uh, in the dental calculus of a religious woman uh, in Germany, probably the 11th or 12th century. And that's how I got involved in the project, is they got very excited about the idea uh, that this might have something to do with book production. They asked a colleague at a different university who said, no, women would never have been given that kind of expensive uh, material to work with. And this is how these... These ideas get get they, they keep life breathing into them because if people haven't heard the news that women copy books. They don't think maybe that's a possibility, um, and so we were able to identify the sort of using combining what I know about the gestures of the female scribe and the the dipping of the brush into the paint and the you bring the point 
the brush to a fine point. You dip it into lap the, into the pigment, into the paint. You apply the paint, and you repeat that over and over again. So we found one example. Okay, so that's that was very very exciting. Um, but what we're trying to do now is to extend that research uh, and see if we can find other examples. And that's actually part of a, a much bigger project that I'm working on uh, right now called From Text to Teeth. Uh, and we're trying to find more of this kind of example in the archaeological record. Right now, that's a unique find. It was a blockbuster find. It was really exciting. Um, but if there are other book artists who have lots of dental calculus deposited on their teeth, um, male or female, we should be able to find them if we have access. Okay, Brett. So this brings up um, an interesting question based on what you said earlier about working with one of your students um, and uh-huh. recreating some of these pigments. How much do you have to have tried the process yourself to <laughs> know the right kind of questions to ask and the right places to look? Well, I mean, it's a combination of things. So there are, uh, I mean, we know what to look for in terms of the gestures. We know how scribes, we see pictures of them writing. We see pictures of them painting that are uh, in, in, in preserved manuscripts. We have manuals, uh, especially from the later Middle Ages, that, that give instructions on how to paint. And it includes the description of putting the paintbrush uh, in your mouth and bringing it to a fine point. But one of the things, I think one of the really exciting things that our team that, that uh, worked with the Dental Calculus Project, one of the exciting things they did was, was actually experimental archaeology. It was a, uh, a vital thing for the kind of work we're doing. They actually put it in their mouth uh, and then detected how much of it stuck to that, uh, that biofilm uh, in their mouth. And we had several other ideas about how the lapis lazuli pigment might have gotten into um, the the remains are labeled B78. So I always refer to the, the, the scribe as B78. It got into B78's mouth. It could have been from painting. One of the other ideas was that maybe she was consuming it as a kind of a medical practice called lap, lapidary medicine. Um, and they, they tried that. They actually, you can buy lapis lazuli pigment. It's not expensive anymore because uh, they find it in places other than Afghanistan. So it's, the supply is higher and the demand is lower, so the cost has come down. But they actually tried putting it in their mouths in a liquid, uh, in a lozenge, and it doesn't stick to the dental calculus in the same way that it does if you put a paintbrush in your mouth and then your saliva pools behind your teeth and it actually sticks much more readily to the dental calculus that way. So we, the, the team actually did experiments, uh, and that's part of our plan for moving forward, too, is to see what kinds of activities lead to deposits in dental calculus, especially uh, not just with book production, but also cloth and textile production, leather work, and things like that. If you, if you replicate the gestures and the activities of the people whose uh, remains you're working with, in a lab or in, a, in an experimental area, uh, you can see what kind of debris that activity produces that gets stuck in the dental calculus. And then you have a better sense of what you're looking for uh, in the, the human skeletal record. And I do want to thank you for um, the most interesting conversation I've ever had with my dentist. I was studying <laughs> up uh, on this before 
we interviewed you and I had a dentist appointment two days ago and they they were fascinated by it so oh, that's funny <laughs> well one of the, one of the best the best invitations I ever got I was still a professor at Ohio State when this research uh, came out in science advances and I was invited to speak to the dental hygienists at the College of Dentistry at Ohio State and I don't think they knew what to make of it um, but it was great fun to speak to dentists about it. Um, and uh, they, they never, I don't think they ever look at dental calculus again the same way. I feel a bit guilty when I have my teeth cleaned now because I think I'm destroying data. Um, it, it, it definitely changes the, the, the way you, uh, you, you think about uh, sort of the, the mouth, and at least for an historian, you know, somehow along the way the mouth became a kind of archaeological site uh, in my world. Uh, and we've been doing lots and lots of interesting work with remains from other communities, one in Italy, um, working on one right now from a community just down across the border uh, in England near Newcastle. Um, and uh, we, we have human remains and we look for dental calculus on their teeth. Usually, I, I mean, I remember when they first called me and told me they were working with dental calculus. I thought, oh, yuck. Uh, so most people usually think, oh, disgusting. But it it's absolutely fascinating in its potential for, for opening a window on the, on the actual lives of the people uh, that we're trying to study, whether um, they were book producers or makers of textiles or they just had dental caries and, and other pathologies that you can detect uh, in the dental calculus. And we can go down now, the team I'm working with can take that debris and go down to the nanoparticle level uh, using... Uh, uh, scanning electron microscopy. Uh, for me, it's an amazing thing, and I'm glad dentists like it too. My mother and father's dentist really were, was excited about it as well. Yeah, it was <laughs> the most unique excuse they had ever heard for why I didn't floss quite as what? much as I nope. should right. have. Right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> right, Rick. Well, I think uh, for the archaeological record, I'm going to quit brushing my teeth. Yeah, that, that's, I'm thinking about <laughs> that's that, too, for prosperity. That's a takeaway. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I was quoted. We were, for some reason, the, the story of the of B-78 and her lapis lazuli hit the media very hard. And I was quoted to my great horror in the New York Times. They, they tend to pick up little things you say and quote them. And I said, I have a new relationship now with Sonicare. Uh, and that's how they ended this article. I'm not sure it did much for my professional reputation, but uh, um, I, it, it makes you think about about um, sort of uh, what you're destroying when you clean your teeth. Yeah, One you of go. the things that we de that was developed um, because the the first way that uh, they were breaking down the dental calculus was using hydrochloric acid solution, and that actually kills the color. The lead of our team, Anita Redini, um, decided to stay in the lab that night and just kind of watch, and she saw the blue. And in the morning, it was gone. Um, so she developed, she's developed uh, some new techniques that actually use uh, the same technology that your Sonicare uses to break down that calcified matrix uh, to release the, the debris entrapped. Um, but some people still use hydrochloric acid, but the same Sonicare technology is part of the, the program for moving forward. Allison, uh, I'm going to morph away from uh, teeth brushing and, and uh, tartar. Uh, your book title talks about women as scribes, book production, but also monastic reform in the 12th century. What were the reforms that you were referring to? 
so the, the, the women that I study and the, the women who were, well, the, the, the women that I focus the most on in the, their various reforms, but in the 12th century, there were calls to sort of bring back a kind of a golden age when people followed the rule of St. Benedict properly and all of its rules. It, it was a myth always, uh, and it was probably a myth in the 12th century. Um, but the idea was a kind of return to sort of a back-to-basics reform. So we're going to um, have uh, academic work. We're going we're to read the Bible. There's going to be pro- proper preaching. Uh, the liturgy will be properly carried out. And these kinds of reforms that rely on textual things, new copies of the Bible, new liturgies, almost always spark uh, an, an uptick in the production of manuscripts. It becomes a priority to have correct manuscripts, to have enough for study, to have books that will be vectors for the, your reform ideas to other communities. And so the women, it, I mean, it, there were many, probably many women copying books in other contexts, but because I came to the topic from my standpoint as a monastic historian, and because monastic communities were the locus almost exclusively in the 12th century for book production. If you were going to be literate and copying books, it was almost certainly going to be uh, in a monastic community. So, so the reform and the women intersected that way. When reform happens, you need new texts, and women in my circle became, in, which is Germany, I study 12th century Germany, became uh, more visible. And I start to see enough women who put their names to the manuscript Sophia wrote this, or Ermengarde wrote this, that I can start from them and identify what their hands look like, and then look for them working in other places. So the, the monastic reform for me was almost uh, an accident. It was just one of the things that produces more books, or that, that's an impetus for the creation of more books. And so that's where I went uh, to look for female scribes. Okay, we only have about a minute for before we're going to, you know, get to our final question. So I'm going to ask something that I hope will be fairly quick to answer, because I okay. think I think most of us see when you use the word the word books or book production, we see modern books with paragraphs and indentations and all of those kinds of things. So I think we should probably clarify what does a medieval book actually look like. It looks like one of our books. It's a bit thicker. Um, the pages are certainly thicker, but they're both codex format. And a codex format is what we think of as a book. So I could easily be referring to these as medieval codices. A manuscript is just a form of a book that's written by hand. Um, but they look like books. If you go to a medieval library uh, and you look at them, maybe they're lying down on their backs instead of standing up on the bookshelf, but they look very much from... Uh, with their clothes on, they look very much like uh, modern books. Fewer uh, finding aids on the page, at least early on in the Middle Ages. They develop more and more index ideas and headers and things that make things easier to find as time, as we move forward uh, in the Middle Ages. But really, I, I don't think people have the wrong idea in their head when they picture a, midi- uh, a modern book. It's the same shape with pages. All right. This is written by hand. Um, it's customary that we give our guests the last word. So in about two minutes or so, Allison, can you talk to us about why knowing about women and medieval book production is relevant in today's world? 
Okay. Um, that's an interesting question. So one of the things that I think uh, shapes the way people think about their own lives in the modern period is based on gendered narratives. So we have a sense that things were a particular way in the Middle Ages, and that's natural, right? You can even go back to the earliest uh, parts of the, 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 the common era. So um, what I guess used to be called uh, A.D. Uh, and you can see that there are gendered narratives about who should do what, what people, uh, which things are for women and which things are not for women to do, which things are natural for women and unnatural. And these are socially constructed, gendered ideas about women's work. And I think when we don't question these inherited narratives that come forward to us from the Middle Ages or earlier, the early modern, uh, the Middle Ages or earlier, um, it's really easy to convince ourselves that those stories um, reflect how things ought to be or that they should have an impact, they should limit what women or men consider what is sort of appropriate work, uh, appropriate uh, activities for them. In the case, I think it's relevant for us that women in the Middle Ages, no matter what male authors might have said about what women were doing, when you find a woman like B78 who has lapis lazuli pigment in her teeth, and when you find a fragment like I did of a, uh, a woman writing her name uh, in a book, uh, as the scribe a few years ago in a library in Austria. Uh, these may be little bits, but they offer a kind of corrective to this dominant narrative about gendered work in the Middle Ages. And if we're going to rethink, and I, I'm a modern feminist, I think it's a good idea to rethink some of the, the gender-based divisions between male and female labor in, um, in the modern world. And we cannot tell the story, I think, if you read my work, that this was, that female, uh, that women didn't copy books, that they didn't do intellectual work, that they weren't literate. Um, it, it, it makes it harder for the narratives that we tell ourselves in the present to, to stand when we break down the, the, the notion that they've just been so embedded, they're so, um, they're natural, that there's something we have to fight against. Um, they're just sometimes wrong, uh, and we can forget about them and uh, move into a different present. So that would be my best, my best estimation of why it's relevant. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to... What women's work is. Yeah. yeah. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. 
This concludes our 481st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Allison Beach, professor of medieval history at the University of St. Andrews, who talked about her book, Women and Scribes, Book Production and Monastic Reform in the 12th Century Bavaria. The History Bus for today's show, we're Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. I would like to wish all of our listeners to experience and enjoy the great Basutu proverb, Hutsa Pulinala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.